The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the Word, we always make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture teaches us that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he was going to be replaced, he said, by the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would help us understand all things, that is, that which is revealed in the Scriptures. So it is God, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us. He is the one who helps us to understand God's Word. And when we are not in fellowship with the Lord, which means whenever we sin... We violate God's righteous standard. We don't lose our salvation. We can never lose our salvation. But we do break fellowship with God. We are disobedient children, and we need to recover fellowship. And that is done simply by following the procedure of 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God in the privacy of silent prayer, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that instant, fellowship is recovered, the filling of the Holy Spirit is restored, and we can resume our Christian advance and our Christian life. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, so you can use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, as we come together this morning to study your word, we pray that we would be ready to concentrate, ready to focus, ready to learn what you have to teach us this morning. Father, as we study this concept of, of love that is expressed by the Apostle John in this epistle, there are many difficult things that he says that run contrary to our natural response, our natural inclination. Therefore, we know, as the Scriptures clearly attest, that this kind of love is a product of God the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray that as believers we'd be willing to take the challenge to make your word a priority in our life, because it is only as we renovate our thinking under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit that we can advance and grow in our spiritual life. We pray that you would guide and direct us this morning as we study these things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we continue our study where John is explaining, beginning to develop or continuing his, his commentary, his application, explanation and application of what Jesus commanded in John 13, 34, and 35, which is a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you. This concept of divine love, which is the model for human love, is something that is difficult for us to understand because it is totally divorced from our experience. Again and again, I make the point that we do not love love because of our own past, our own experiences, our own feelings, our own emotions. That is the standard human response is that we know love because of 
some sort of uh, experience that we've had because of background, because of our culture, the culture around us. More and more today defines love in terms of emotion, in terms of experience, in terms of stimulation. And yet that's not what we find in Scripture. In fact, the context of our passage, 1 John 3, verse 16, John says, By this we know love. How do we know what love is? Because he laid down his life as a substitute for us. So what John is asserting here is that we don't know love because of any other factor other than looking at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, specifically the act of God sending his unique son to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. That then becomes the starting point for understanding what love is. So any time in life when you want to talk about love, whether that's love of a friend for a friend, whether that is uh, romantic love, love in a marriage between a husband and a wife, or any other kind of love, that starting point to even talk about it is must be based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Any other category of human love is somehow anemic. It is always going to end up being conditional because that is the nature of fallen man. This kind of love is not the kind of love that we can generate on our own. We can't just look at it. It's not a moral love. It's not the idea that, that okay, now that I'm a Christian and I hear this, I have to somehow manufacture this. It, it can't be artificially manufactured on our own. We're told in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23, that this is a fruit of the Spirit. That is, that it is only as we take in the Word of God and apply the Word of God that as we follow that dynamic, then God the Holy Spirit is going to take the doctrine that we've learned, that we've stored in our soul, that we're applying, and He then uses that to produce growth. The analogy that we use is, is, is to eating. You make a decision to eat. You go to the grocery store, you buy food, you bring it home, you cook it on the stove, or if some of you don't know how to cook on the stove, you put it in the microwave and you just reheat it, but then you eat it. That's your choice. The kind of food you eat, the quality of the food you eat, and that you eat, that is your volition. But once you swallow, then automatic reflexes take over in the process of of digestion and metabolism of the food, and that it's broken down in your intestines and distributed through the blood system to the cells and your muscles, and then you have to choose how you're going to use that. You can use the the nutrition that you take in through the food to be a couch potato and watch television and go to Blockbuster and rent movie after movie after movie or just sit around and watch uh you know, watch sports or whatever it is, or you can go out and you can work out and you can develop those muscles and you can uh, go to the gym or you can go outside and work in the yard or whatever it might be, use and convert that energy to something that has uh, in the realm of positive application. But what happens between the time you eat and the time you use it or apply it is not up to your volition. There, there's a process, that that automatic process that God has built into the biology of the human race and the physical body that breaks everything down and makes it usable. That's the same thing that happens in the spiritual life. You make a decision to uh, go to the, gro- the spiritual grocery store, that is to go to, to a Bible class and to take in the Word. You, that's like eating. But once you learn the Word and you believe it, and we go through the process that we studied in... in um, as we have gone through the grace learning spiral, and that is that the pastor teacher communicates doctrine under the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit when we are in fellowship. God the Holy Spirit makes that understandable. And we have to exercise our intellect to understand it. Doesn't mean that when, that he understands it for us. We have to use our volition at that point, either negatively or positively. Negatively, we just sit there and we just sort of listen, and the pastor's voice becomes a steady drone, and we tune it out and we worry about what's going to happen this afternoon. We worry about what we're going to do this next week, how we're going to handle some problem with the kids, whatever was going on yesterday, how we're ever going to put up with that spouse of ours and, and that activity. Whatever it is, you know, you just tune it out. So that's negative volition. Positive volition, you focus, you take notes. 
you you go home and you think about it, and that becomes understandable. Once you understand it, once you understand it, now you have another choice, either positive or negative volition. And uh, at this point, after you understand it, it becomes gnosis, which is just academic knowledge. And you have to choose to accept it as true or reject it. See, you can't believe something you don't understand. See, if you think you can believe something you don't understand, then you've bought into human viewpoint reasoning. See, the, the, the unbelieving world out there thinks that faith is somehow irrational. But the Bible doesn't express faith as rational. Faith is the function of reason. You are believing something you understand. And so you have to understand it as gnosis before you can believe it. Once you believe it, then God puts it into what the Scripture calls the heart or the cardia in the Greek, which is the innermost thinking of the soul. And there it becomes what the Greek calls epinosis knowledge. The epi is a preposition that makes it full knowledge. And this is where it becomes usable. It is at this point, ready for application. It's like the food that's broken down now in your uh, intestines and it's been distributed to the muscles and uh, the cells of your, of your muscles, and it's ready to be used. But now you have to exercise another positive volition or negative volition. You can make be negative and just uh, not apply it, in which case eventually you're going to start reversing your spiritual growth or you exercise it positively and begin to take that doctrine that is being stored in the mentality of your soul and you start using it and applying it in the way you think, how you think, what you do, how you relate to other people. And as you advance in the spiritual life, you will eventually get to a point as you understand God, who God is, and you get to the more advanced stages of spiritual growth, that's where the, this whole concept of applying love begins to come into effect. Not that as an immature baby you can't express love, but let's take a, a natural response. You look at that one-year-old, two-year-old that you had or have or you're familiar with, and they have a certain um, emotional attraction to their parents. But the love that they have for their parents and the love that a 25-year-old or 30-year-old has for their parents once they get past that adolescent rebellious stage where they don't think you have an IQ more than two digits, um, once they get past that stage and suddenly your IQ goes from 65 to 130 and they wonder how you got so smart as a parent so quickly, um, what happens once you once a... a you and your spiritual, once that child gets past that stage, the love that they have for a parent is much more profound and mature than that love they had as a two-year-old or three-year-old. Because now it's really based on knowledge and understanding. It's not just based on being in close proximity. So that's what happens in the spiritual life. To really fulfill this command, you have to have some maturity behind you. There has to be some spiritual growth. It's not something that is uh, going to be exhibited by the young baby or immature believer. That's why when Jesus makes a statement to his disciples, he says, by this all men will know you are my disciples. A disciple is not a believer or simply a believer. A disciple is a believer who is advancing to maturity. Some of you have decided you want to be a disciple, that is a consistent, dedicated learner of spiritual truth, applying it in your life and advancing and growing in, in uh, spiritual maturity. Others of you are just glad you're going to go to heaven and hopefully nobody will realize you're, you're running a scam in your spiritual life while you're here on earth. But I hope eventually you'll wake up and realize that doctrine is important. And if you don't make doctrine the highest priority in your life, then, number one, you're going to go through a lot of self-induced misery in your life because you're going to make bad decisions. And it's amazing how these bad decisions are going to pile up on one another. And too often in life we want to see some sort of, uh, let's say, direct line correlation between our bad decisions 
and the consequences. But life is not, life is messy. I don't know if you've ever realized that, but life is messy and, and what happens is when you're in negative volition, you just make a, a whole web, like a spider's web of bad decisions. And what eventually happens is you wake up one day and you're having problems with money, you're having problems with your career, you're miserable, you're unhappy, you're having marriage problems, but you can't look back and say, okay, I made this bad decision which produced this problem with my career, or I made that bad decision, that's why I'm having problems in my marriage. You're just making a whole web of bad decisions, and your life is in a self-destruct mode, not only... Are you reaping the con- the consequences of bad decisions? But God, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and a child of God, Hebrews 11 tells us that God is going to discipline you. And actually, in the in the Greek, the word there means to whip, to flog, to scourge alive. God is going to intensively discipline you in order to get your attention back to the Word. Now, if you enjoy, some people are spiritual masochists. They just sort of enjoy going through divine discipline year after year after year, they never quite get the point. But if uh, if if you don't in, enjoy that, then uh, you're going to realize sooner or later that doctrine needs to be the highest priority of your life and you need to arrange your life and your schedule so that you're in class on Sunday morning and Wednesday night and listening to tapes during the week. You know, I love music. And this last week I was looking at my CD collection and I started playing a few things and I said, you know, I just never seem to really listen to music anymore. I don't turn on the radio and listen to music. When I, and I realized when I get in the car, I always have eight or ten tapes from I don't know how many different people. And I'm always listening. I'm listening to some of Arnold's tapes when he was here back for the uh, conference in March. I've got stuff that Charlie Clough's done. I've got Pastor Themes tapes. I'm, I probably have 15 or 20 tapes in the car, and every now and then I have to go out and clean everything up and organize it. But it's every time I get in the car and go anywhere, go to the grocery store, uh, go work out, run an errand, I'm always popping a tape in and constantly listening to somebody teach the Word. And that's what it takes to grow in advance. That's what it means to make doctrine your life. And sometimes that means that you don't do things you enjoy. I, I, I love listening. I love listening to music. I love listening to all kinds of music. And um, some kinds of music other people don't really enjoy that much, you know. But uh, uh, you, we, the choice, as I stated last time, that 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 self-destructs most Christians in their life is not that they necessarily make bad choices. That is a choice between an obvious moral evil and uh, a, a moral good, but it's that they're choosing the good instead of the best. And see, the best is the Word of God and making that a priority in your life. And only when you do that are you going to start seeing some significant uh, spiritual growth in your life. When you do that, you're going to begin to learn what God is like. You're going to learn more and more about who He is and what He's done and what He has provided. And as we come to know God, the consequent result of that is that our capacity to love God is going to develop and increase, just like a child who's two years old, three years old, doesn't have much of a capacity for love, but a 25 or 30 year old who begins to develop a mature adult relationship with his parents is going to learn that, learn to know them better, learn to appreciate their strengths, their weaknesses, their gifts, their abilities, what they provided for them, and they're going to have a much greater capacity to uh, love their parents. So as a result of developing that capacity of love for God, we then, going along with that, develop a capacity to love others. And because we understand God, who he is, and what grace is all about, that then is parlayed into an ability to love other people in this way the Scripture defines this, because this is not an emotional love. This is a love that is based on understanding, based on knowledge, not a love that is based on on feeling or emotion, and we've covered that. Verse 16 we read, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So very quickly, John moves from how we know what love is, what it's exemplified by, and then directly into application. It's not just knowing academic truth. We look at what Jesus did on the cross 
And we are to mirror that in our life. Just as he laid down his life as a substitute for us, we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And then last time I... We covered verse 17 where we developed the application and he uses a point that relates <clears throat> to our bank account. He always hits people where they're living. Whoever has the world's good. Now we have to be careful with this because it just seems like translators and theologians and pastors sometimes just want to get into people's pocket, pocketbooks and, and get their money for some reason. And there's also tends to be this pious socialism that tends to run through the interpretation of Scripture. And so uh, you get some, some fuzzy translations here that come across sounding uh, as if it's wrong to have wealth, wrong to accumulate uh, possessions, and that you ought to just uh, give everything away. Well, if you gave everything away, you could never amass any wealth. You could never build any more possessions in order to be able to meet the needs of other people. So it becomes a self-defeating cycle. Actually, what this says in the Greek is whoever, that means whoever, whatever believer has this potential, has, it's a subjunctive mood verb, which indicates the potential of having possessions. Whoever has this world's goods, and actually in the Greek, the word there is bios, from which we get the bio in biology, and that doesn't refer to the principle of life, but it refers to the means to sustain life. And it is the the means to sustain life of the world. In other words, what, what John is saying here, whoever has the means to maintain life. And secondly, and behold, so there's a compound verb here, whoever has and sees. Whoever, you can't the application here, of course, is to meet other people's needs, but it, you can't meet needs with what you don't have. So it begins with recognizing that you have certain possessions and realizing as a believer that everything we have, whether it has to do with our time, whether it has to do with our talents and abilities, or whether it has to do with our money, everything that we have comes from God. You may think that you worked hard, that you went to school, that you developed a trade, and that you have, on the on the basis of your own talent and energy, produced all of this wealth. But I know many people who have a lot of talent and energy and great education, and because of negative volition in their life, they haven't produced anything. God is the one who is the source of every good thing in our life, and God is the one who gives you and me that time, that money, and those abilities and talents. And we are, as it were, uh, responsible to God for how we use that. And part of how we use that comes to the fact that it's not just to be spent on our own personal desires and our own personal pleasures, but God gives us these resources in order to help others. And that is going to be manifested in many different ways, part of which is to support a local church ministry, another part of which is to support missions, and missionaries and to send missionaries out. And another part is to just to help those who may come in our periphery who have legitimate needs. Now, not everyone that comes along with a sad story has a legitimate need. Sometimes the best thing you can do for some people is not to give them anything because all you're going to do by giving them anything is just sort of subsidize their irresponsibility and laziness. But there are people who have legitimate needs, and uh, God supplies that which we uh, which we can have, so that we can can help them. Now, sometimes the Lord doesn't provide. Sometimes some of us are put in a position where we don't have, simply because I think that that God recognizes that if we had certain things, we might use that to help people, and He doesn't want them to have that opportunity. For whatever reason. So there's all kinds of things that may be a part of the uh, overall plan of God. And last time we looked at this verse, we saw that whoever has uh, the, uh, the material needs of life and observes another believer in need, you have what they need. And shuts up his heart from him, and that doesn't mean shut up your heart. It means to close up your compassion. You just shut down your compassion. You're not going to have any appreciation for the suffering that that person is going through or the difficulty or their need. And John says, how can the love of God abide in him? Now, he's not saying, how are they a believer? We've studied this. Is that at this point, 
the love from God, we saw that last time, that that is a, what's called a uh, subjective genitive. Now, this is a difficult concept for some to understand. It's a little uh, point, of, point of grammar. You have certain verbs like faith, love, which are nouns. But these nouns describe an action. They, and so they're called nouns of action. Now, you can have a phrase like, like love of God. And that can mean, see, I hate it whenever you have translators who cop out and they translate genitives with a simple of because of can mean anything. It's, a, it's an awfully uh, uh, nebulous concept. See, that can be love for God. Love directed to God, where God is the object of the love, and that's what's called an objective genitive because it functions like a direct object. Or it can be love from God, in which case this would also be God's love, where God is viewed as the one who's doing the loving, and so in that sense it would be like God is the subject of the verb, and that's called a Subjective genitive. And you have, as a, as a translator of the scriptures, you have to look at the context to determine which it is. And this is not talking about, uh, uh, love for God here, but a, um, it's talking about a love from God. So that makes it a, um, an objective, or excuse me, a subjective Genitive, it's love from God, and this is the love that is produced in the believer by God the Holy Spirit. And it is a unique kind of love. Now, we have already studied that in the context of Galatians 5, which outlines the fruit of the Spirit, that Paul makes the command there, walk by the Spirit. And when you're walking by means of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to produce the fruit of the Spirit. But we can sin, in which case we are walking then according to the sin nature. And when we're walking according to the sin nature, we're grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit, and the fruit is not being produced. Now, walking by the Spirit is tantamount to being in fellowship or abiding abiding in Christ. And that takes us back to that key word, meno. Uh, to abide, which is in this passage, and John specifically chooses that word here in this last phrase, how does the love from God abide in him? The love from God can only abide when we're abiding, and abiding is always, as we'll see in this passage, a two-way road. We abide in him, but he also abides in us, so fellowship with Christ is is a mutual thing. There is a mutuality there. It is toward Him, and He abides toward us. But when we sin, we're not abiding, and He's not abiding. His love's not abiding in us. So this is a reference to the fact that that when you look at uh, somebody in legitimate need and refuse to acknowledge that, meet that need, even though you have the ability and the capacity to do that, then that indicates that you're out of fellowship and you're not in a, not growing or applying doctrine. Then we come to verse 18. Verse 18 says, My little children, let us not love in word or deed, but in New King, New King James translates it, but indeed and in truth. So we need to pay a little attention to how we translate this before we can get to the application. The point is, basically, don't just give love lip service. Now, that's what happens with a lot of Christians. We talk about loving one another. We talk about using what we call impersonal love, which means you exercise unconditional love towards a person you don't know. There's no personal relationship, just somebody you meet on the street, somebody you run into in some sort of service occupation, but you're going to treat them in love. You don't have to have a personal relationship with them to 
uh, to demonstrate this kind of love. Therefore, it is impersonal. It's not based on any conditions of attractiveness in the object of that love. Therefore, you're not saying, well, you have to behave a certain way, you have to look a certain way, you have to respond to me a certain way in order for me to treat you in love. It's unconditional. It's not based on who and what we are. It's based on who God is and what Christ did on the cross. So that's the foundation. Don't just give it lip service. Don't just talk about it. It has to work itself out in terms of application. Now, what John says is, little children... Do not uh, love, and this is what's called a hortatory subjunctive. It's let us not love. It is a um, first-person plural subjunctive. Now, first-person plural subjunctive functions like a first-person imperative. Now, in English, we don't have such a thing. We just have an imperative in the second person. You do this. But an, a hortatory subjunctive is like a first-person imperative, let us do this. And the author is including himself in that, and he says, my little children, let us. And at this, he uses the first-person plural to include himself with his audience, let us not love. So the subjunctive mood here does not indicate so much potentiality as it does an imperatival force. This is a mandate. He is challenging every believer who reads this to apply the commandment to love one another as Christ loved the church. So he says, let us not love. And then he uses two words. The first is the word logos, and the second is the word glose, but they are both in the dative case which is an instrumental dative. Let us not love by means of words or by means of the tongue, and tongue there just stands for speech. In other words, don't just talk about it. Don't just give it lip service. Don't just uh, acknowledge it with your words, but apply it. Let us not love by means of word or tongue, but he says in deed and in truth. So the but there is a strong adversative, and a contrast between the person who gives love lip service and the person who actually applies. It is a reminder in many ways of the basic message of James chapter 2. And that is the doctrine that is heard only and not applied is useless. It's what James refers to as a dead faith. Not that it was never existence, but it's a faith that has no practical application, no value in terms of your own spiritual life. So we are to love in deed and in truth. And the first word for deed is the Greek word ergon, which is the same word used for works or application over in James. In James chapter 2, it says that our faith is demonstrated by works, that is application. So John is saying the same thing, that we are to love by means of application and by means of truth. In other words, this love is not a love that is just some sort of uh, uncontrolled emotional uh, love toward everybody, but it's controlled in terms of application of doctrine and by means of truth, that is the Word of God. So there's a, a control factor on this love, and that is the truth of God's Word. God's Word tells us how and under what circumstances we are to execute this this kind of Love. It is, once again, a love that has an objective standard in the revealed Word of God. It is That objective standard is, first of all, uh, demonstrated at the cross, where Jesus Christ died as a substitute for our sins, and secondly, through the direct teaching in God's Word related to the subject of love. So in verse 18, John says, My little children... Don't love in lip service only, but apply the word and use your doctrine to love one another. Verse 19, and by this we know that we are of the truth. In other words, by looking at your application of love based on doctrine, you can know something, that you are of the truth, and this shall assure our hearts before him. Now, what does he mean when he says we are of the truth? Once again, we run into the same basic problem we've run into again and again, and that is that people want to take this as a sign of salvation. But as I've shown again and again, he is addressing people who are already saved. 
Their salvation is not the question. Their fellowship and their spiritual growth is the issue. So being of the truth has to do with growing believers who are applying doctrine in their life. If they are walking in the light, that is your experience of spiritual growth, then you are of the truth because you are applying the truth in your life. That's why he just said, notice the connection, that we are to love in truth. And if you are loving in truth, then you know that you are operating in the realm of truth, walking in the light is how he expressed it in John uh, 1, 1. But if you are not doing this, you're out of fellowship. The love of God is not abiding. You're not abiding, and you're walking in darkness. So in verse 19, by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So this brings us to um, the key word patho, which is the word for assurance here. And patho, P-E-I-T-H-O, has to do with uh, confidence, and uh, con- conviction, and that we have been convinced of something. So once again, it, all of this has to do with some level of certainty in terms of our relationship with God. Now that is important because it takes us right back to 1 John 2:28. And uh, this is the theme of this section. Now, little children, abide in him that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. See, what John is developing here is the idea that in order to have confidence and a level of certainty at his coming and not to be ashamed, then you need to be applying the principle of impersonal love in all of your relationships. Because that's a sign of growth, it's a sign of fellowship, and it's a sign that you have reached a level of maturity so that you will not be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ. Not the great white throne judgment, which is for unbelievers, but the judgment seat of Christ, which is the evaluation judgment for all believers. And the issue there is not heaven or hell. The issue there is role and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom and in eternity in the future. So this emphasizes once again the importance of walking and advancing in the spiritual life, walking in fellowship and abiding in Christ. In contrast, in verse 20 he says, For if our heart condemns us, and there the word isn't heart, I just hate heart terminology. It's so subjective. And people think it's, you know, always want to make heart mean emotion or something like that. And it's it's not that at all. In fact, the Greek word here is, um, emphasizes the mentality of the soul. And often the word heart in Scripture has to do with that innermost part of our thinking where our deepest-seated convictions are. So it has to do with thinking. Besides, emotion can't condemn you. All emotion is is a response. You have to think to have uh, some sort of condemnation. If your thinking condemns you, If you look at this standard, in other words, and you realize you're not living up to it, you're not applying it, you're only exercising lip service, then John reminds us, remember, God is greater than your thinking. God knows all things. And that is a reminder that there is still grace, there's still the opportunity to grow, and God is going to provide the... um, the, the doctrine and the growth mechanism through the Holy Spirit so that you can advance. And then in contrast, verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence before God. Remember, if you're still alive, I don't care how much you've failed, I don't care how badly you have screwed your life up, I don't care what sins you've committed, If you're still alive, God has a plan and a purpose for your life. Your bad decisions are not greater than God's plan. You cannot finally and definitely screw up God's plan. He may take you out under the sin of death, but if you're still alive, God has a plan. You can recover. You may have to spend 
48 hours with using First John 1, 9, day in, day out, moment after moment, because you spend one second in fellowship and one second out because you've built up such a habit pattern of carnality. But if you start taking in the Word, then recovery is possible and God's plan will be back in effect for your life as you begin to advance and you begin to grow. And that's the principle behind verse 20. And the principle behind verse 21 is if you recognize that you're applying this principle, then you know that you can have confidence before God at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, before we get any further, I want to cover a few more things on impersonal love. First, some characteristics of impersonal love. Now, remember what I mean by impersonal love is not uh, some sort of cold love that is just mechanical. Impersonal love emphasizes the fact that you do not have to have personal knowledge of the object of love. You do not have to have a personal relationship with the object of your love. Therefore, your personal involvement with that person is not the issue. It can be the the uh, gal at the checkout stand at the grocery store, the person waiting on you in a department store, the the uh, person who really needs to go back and take another driving course that's uh, uh, in front of you on the on the highway. It can be one of the people around here who's driving a 30 and a 45 mile an hour zone and stacking, you know, eight or ten cars up behind him. You don't know them, but you have to treat them in an impersonal love and treat them as just the same way that God treats you when you're being just as obstinate and stubborn and irrational. So let's look at these characteristics. Impersonal love is impossible. It is impossible. It's not just difficult. It's impossible. But God doesn't mandate the impossible without providing the means of accomplishment. God does not expect you to perform the impossible without providing the means for you to accomplish that, and that is through the Holy Spirit who produces this in your life. Second, impersonal love is the hallmark of the disciple, the growing believer. It is what distinguishes him. It is not something that can be produced by uh, an unbeliever. It is not something that can be produced by a lukewarm believer, but it is something that is unique to the advancing uh, learner or disciple or maturing believer. Third, impersonal love is the basis for problem solving in all human relations. It doesn't matter if it's with your boss, with a co-worker, your spouse, your children, your parents, uh, people you know, people you associate with, people you don't even know that just happen to be put on this planet in order to slow you down from getting wherever it is you want to go. Human relationships will never be what you think they ought to be or what they can be because, guess what, those other people have sin natures, and they are just as fallen and just as inherently corrupt as we are. And so the only way to get past that is through impersonal love. Impersonal love, fourth, is the ability to accept people as they are, warts and all. We know what their strengths are, we know what their weaknesses are, and we can accept them as they are because we know that while our warts may be different, we still have warts. It is not only the absence of mental attitude sins, such as jealousy, bitterness, anger, resentment, vindictiveness, the absence of prejudice, but it is also positively the presence of a genuine concern, a genuine regard and solicitousness for even those who may be treating us the worst. In other words, we can look at somebody who is out to get us, somebody who is gunning for us, somebody who is um, has revenge on their minds for whatever perceived or real uh, hurt that they have, they're out to get us, yet we can focus on what the real issues are in their life and have genuine regard and concern for them. Fifth, impersonal love will have no stability or strength without grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. That's why when we lay out the the uh, ten stress busters, the problem-solving devices, the spiritual skills, 
that grace orientation and doctrinal orientation come first. They are foundational. If you don't understand grace, that God loves you no matter how obnoxious you are, no matter what a horrible sinner you are, that he sent his son to die on the cross while we were yet sinners. If you can't grasp the point that God's love for you has nothing to do with you, then you'll never understand the principle that your love for other people has nothing to do with them. And that God's love for us is based on who he is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross, and therefore our love for other people has nothing to do with them and has everything to do with who God is and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And that's why you have to have doctrinal orientation, because if you don't understand who God is, and if you don't understand what Jesus Christ did on the cross, then you can't ever truly understand grace. And impersonal love or unconditional love is based and built on that understanding. So that's like uh, understanding grace orientation and doctrinal understanding is like basic arithmetic, and impersonal love is like calculus. I didn't hear it already. Well, I'll never understand calculus, so maybe I need to find a better illustration. Perfect example of impersonal love is given in Luke chapter 10. Let's turn back and look at Luke chapter 10. Notice how when Jesus teaches, he always tries to teach with some concrete illustration. This is important for those of you who are teaching in the prep school, is that don't try to teach concepts like impersonal love in just some sort of abstract way the Bible does. And I mean, we can't understand impersonal love in just some sort of abstract way, divorced from uh, some sort of, of, of concrete example. It's always taught when Jesus says love one another, he doesn't stop there. He says love one another as I've loved you. This is the whole demonstration of God's love in sending his son to become uh, 100% true humanity and to go to the cross. It's, it's, we're given this concrete example. So Jesus teaches the same way, making the same point in Luke chapter um, 10. We have the cert, this lawyer who comes before him, Luke ten twenty five. Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? I always like the way that Jesus interacts with people by answering a question with a question, because that emphasizes and gets them to think about what it is they're actually asking. Sometimes it, Jesus is very sophisticated in the way he handles assaults on him. Somebody's trying to box him in a corner, and he just counterattacks with a question and sidesteps the whole issue. He's absolutely brilliant. See, sometimes we want to make things complicated, and the simplicity of his responses is extremely sophisticated. Uh, so what's written in the law? What's your, what, what do you read it? Had a, got a fly bothering me up here. Almost got him. So the lawyer said, you shall love the, answering the question, what do you think about the summarizing the law? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, in Matthew 22, 34, and 35, Jesus summarized the law into two basic commandments. Number one, you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And number two, love your neighbor as yourself. So apparently this lawyer is simply repeating what he'd heard Jesus uh, say earlier. So Jesus says in verse 28, Well, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, the man then says to Jesus, Well, who is my neighbor? He's going to pin Jesus on uh, on a minor point in the law, well, just exactly who's my neighbor? Is that just the guy who lives next door to me or, or what? And Jesus replied and said with a parable. Now, this is a well-known story the, of the good Samaritan. Now, the term Samaritan refers to somebody who lives in Samaria. For those of you who are ignorant of biblical geography, uh, during the time of the uh, Roman Empire, Israel was divided into roughly two... Um, Two sections. Where did, there we go. You have the northern side. Here's, we'll, we'll draw it like this. Here's the Mediterranean coast over here. Here's, uh, the, the historic land of Israel here. In the north you have the Sea of Galilee. 
you have the Jordan River, and then down in the south, you have the Dead Sea. Jerusalem's located right about here. You had two basic, uh, or three basic regions here. The northern region was called Galilee. The southern region was the province of Judea. And in between you had Samaria. You'll never forget that now. You know, it's a wonder what a bad joke can do or a bad pun. Okay, you have the area of Samaria. Now, after 535, when the Jews were returning to the land, during that time, after Assyria in 722 B.C. had wiped out the northern kingdom, they resettled into this area uh, a large number of Gentiles from various different areas that the Assyrians had conquered. So now you have the introduction of Gentiles plus some residual Jews, and you have this kind of a hybrid, mixed-breed population there. And in the eyes of the uh, arrogant Jews, they were second-class, third-class citizens. In fact, the kind of the kind of racial uh, prejudice that the Jews had towards the Samaritans were worse than almost any kind of racism that's ever been experienced in in the U.S. In fact, if you lived over here on the Mediterranean coast and you wanted to go up north to Capernaum, if you were a Jew, you would you would go all the way out of your way to travel due west, cross the Jordan River, go up through the area, the region called Perea on the uh, western, uh, the eastern side of the Jordan, and then you would cross back over once you got up into Galilee, just so you wouldn't have to set foot in Samaria because of those those foul, filthy, unclean Samaritans would would uh, render me uh, unclean in the temple or something. So they they uh, hated the Samaritans with a passion. They despised them. They were worthless. They were pigs and goats and apes and whatever horrible terms you might use to define them. That was the level of uh, appreciation the Jews had for Samaritans. So Jesus is going to use uh, a Samaritan as his example, somebody that a Jew would have no affinity for at all, no liking for at all. In fact, he would do everything he could to avoid. He says, uh, in verse 30, a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, the reason he goes down, let me go back to my little map here. Jerusalem is located about here, and Jericho is located about up here. But Jerusalem is, the elevation is high. Therefore, in, for, in, in American idiom, if you're going to go up someplace, you're going north. If you go down, you're going south. But in Jewish idiom, if you're going to Jerusalem from any point, you're going up. And if you're going from Jerusalem to any place, you're going down because you're dropping in elevation. So a certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went off, leaving him half dead. So he gets mugged on his way to Jericho, and he all of his clothes are stolen. He's left naked by the side of the road. He's been beaten up, and he's unconscious and just about dead. And by chance, a certain priest, so this is not just any Jew, it is a priest, someone who should know the word of God and someone who should be applying it in their life consistently. By chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. See, the, the priest just went completely out of his way to and, and, and probably turned his head and looked the other way so he would not have to be confronted with this man on the side of the road that was in desperate straits. And likewise, also a Levite. Now, uh, you have an active priest, and you have a Levite, also someone who should know the word and should be applying it. And likewise, a Levite also, but when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, and a certain Samaritan. Now, this is a person who is hated by Jews. The person who's gone from Jerusalem to Jericho is a Jew, And this Samaritan, who is hated and despised by Jews, was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, saw this person, he felt compassion. Now, he doesn't know the person at all, never seen him before, has no idea whether it's a good person, bad person, whether he's a criminal, whether he deserved to be beaten up and robbed or not, doesn't understand the first thing about him. He just sees this person who is in this horrible circumstance, someone who would probably not give him the time of day if they met under other circumstances. 
But he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his beast. So now the Samaritan is going to be walking, and the injured man is up on his animal. And he brought him to an inn and took care of him. So out of his own expense, he's going to get the guy a room at the inn. He's going to take care of him. He's going to give him medicine, buy him food, and not expect anything in return. On the next day, verse 35, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. So there's a generosity here. He's not just going to give just enough, but he's going to be generous and give more than enough and more that is required and necessary for the situation. Now then, Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man said, well, the one who showed mercy to him. Mercy is grace in action. Jesus said, go and do the same. So the point that Jesus is making here is that in terms of impersonal love, it is not simply the absence of mental attitude sins. It's not simply the absence of um, of hatred or vindictiveness, but it is the presence of doing something positive for somebody, going more, going further than is required, and being generous. That's a principle in. Demonstrating impersonal love. Now let's look at some biblical characteristics of love. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and we'll just briefly summarize what is said, what Paul says in this chapter which describes impersonal or unconditional love. In the first three verses, Paul sets up certain hypothetical situations. He's not saying that these things are possible. In the Greek, we have a a um, first class con- uh, or third class condition, which is merely used to express a condition or a hypothetical condition. It is not stating that any of these things are actually possible, but it is just for the sake of illustration. So Paul begins in the first verse, if I speak with the languages of men and of angels. Just as a side note, because of the construction here, he is not saying that it's possible to speak the languages of angels. It's just it's just an illustration. If I could do everything is what he's saying. If I could speak in every conceivable language, if I had so much talent that I was completely uh, uh, fluent in every language conceivable, but do not have love, then I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, it's just noise. It doesn't matter what what the talent is or what the ability is. Of course, there he's really uh, being very sarcastic towards the Corinthians who are thinking that because they speak in what they thought were tongues, that that made them uh, very spiritual and better than anybody else. So what Paul is saying is, is uh, if you don't have love with your spiritual gifts, then it's irrelevant. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, know all mysteries and all knowledge, even if I know everything and can handle any situation of God speaking through men, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, if I'm a mature, you know, have all this faith, all this knowledge, so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And then 30 says, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, in other words, if I'm very charitable and give everything away, and I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So the point that he is making in each of these situations is that it doesn't matter what we do, it doesn't matter what kind of Christian service or what kind of service we exercise, it doesn't matter what we do for other people, our works are irrelevant if it's not done within the framework of impersonal love. So he shows that this is central to any kind of mature Christian service. Then he's going to give some attributes describing love, starting in verse 4, down through verse 6. Love is patient. This is the Greek word makrothemia, which means long-suffering. It's the ability to, or capacity to endure hostility and rejection, to endure ill-treatment without retaliation, without reaction, without mental attitude sins or resentment or hostility, anger or revenge. See, in contrast to this, the Corinthians had reacted to 
uh, hostility with lawsuits back in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 8. So love is patient. There's a positiveness uh, to that. It's Second, it's kind. Love is kind. Uh, the Greek word here is kestuomi, excuse me, kestuomai, which is grace in action. It means undeserved kindness. Love is based on undeserved or unmerited kindness. In contrast, the Corinthians were divisive and arrogant back in 110, 33, and 321. It emphasized a hierarchy, and they emphasized a hierarchy of gifts and Chapter 12, verses 14 to 25, they weren't kind. They were divisive and arrogant and hostile. Third, love is not jealous. That means it's not interested in its own self-promotion. It's not uh, self-absorbed. That's all part of jealousy. Next he says, fourth he says, love does not brag and is not arrogant. This means uh, the idea of not arrogant is the Greek word pepper. Pepperuomi, which has to do with the description of a braggart, someone who boasts, someone who uh, uses rhetorical embellishment to promote himself, someone who's always talking about his accomplishments and how valuable he is to, to the company or to other people or to your friendship or whatever it might be. So the person is not bragging, Pepperuomi, and he's not arrogant, fusiao, which means to be bloated up, someone who is so absorbed with himself that they're always promoting themselves. It's used seven times, interestingly, that word is used seven times in the New Testament, six times in 1 Corinthians. So that shows that they were an extremely arrogant congregation. But they were still believers and sanctified in the Lord. Always remember that. Believers can be the some of the worst people you ever know, some of the most arrogant people you ever know. So don't fall into the trap of thinking just because somebody is completely obnoxious that therefore they can't be saved. You know, God's in the process of saving people, and just because they reject doctrine doesn't mean you have the right to reject them. 1 Corinthians 13.5, love does not act unbecomingly. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Notice that last phrase. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It's not going to remember something. It's not going to, that's the essence of forgiveness. Forgiveness is, the term afiemi for forgiveness is rooted in economics. If you forgive somebody a debt, somebody owes you $5,000 and they've written you an IOU, and then you decide a year later that you're going to forgive the debt, you tear up that IOU. You can't come back a year later and say, oh, yeah, you still owe me that $5,000. You've torn up the IOU. It's forgotten. That's what forgiveness means. It doesn't mean that uh, necessarily that you're going to forget the fact that this person's untrustworthy and therefore put them in a position of responsibility and trustworthiness quickly or again just so they can fail again. It doesn't mean you're going to be naive, but it means that you're no longer going to hold that against them. You're not going to respond or react to them in hostility, in anger, in bitterness. You're not going to bring it up again. You're not going to say two years from now, well, you remember that time and you remember this time and you remember that other time, you forgive it. That means that you never have a right to bring that up to that person again. So you don't, uh, impersonal love means not taking into account a wrong suffered. Or uh, it doesn't act unbecomingly. That means it doesn't act rudely. It doesn't violate social norms. It's not impolite. It doesn't show uh, bad manners. It deals, treats people with respect for who they are. Verse 6, it doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Once again, it is focused on doctrine. Verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It bears all things. This is from the Greek verb stege, which means to uh, protect someone, to conceal something, to preserve the privacy and the faults of other people. That means to bear all things means you're going to keep it quiet. You're not going to run around and tell everybody about somebody else's faults. You're going to preserve their their uh, privacy. Uh, love believes all things. That means it is focused on the truth of God's word. It is trusting. It is going to trust the person sometimes when you don't think that they're really that, that trustworthy. So love has many different facets, but it runs contrary to our character, and it cannot be produced 
apart from the filling of God the Holy Spirit. Now let's go back to 1 John uh, 3.21. Verse 3.21, says, Little children, abide in him, that is, stay in fellowship in advance. Uh, excuse me, verse 321 says, Beloved, if your heart does not condemn you, then you have we have confidence with God. This reminds us of what he says in verse 28, and that is that when Jesus appears, we can have confidence and not shrink at his coming. Then in verse 22, he's going to change the subject, and there he's going to address the issue of prayer, and we will wait until next time to get into that subject. So with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we do thank you for this time to study your word, to be challenged with the the, uh, mandate of love in our own lives, that we are to follow the example of Jesus Christ, and we know this is impossible apart from the work of God, the Holy Spirit, and that is impossible unless we walk by the Spirit and abide in Christ. So fellowship then becomes the key under which the Holy Spirit teaches us your word. Father, we need to have doctrine as the highest priority of our life because that is the means the Holy Spirit uses to produce that spiritual growth. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal life, that this would be their opportunity to make that sure and certain. You see, every human being is born under a death penalty, eternal condemnation. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The issue is God's provision of salvation, whether or not you are willing to accept it or not. Salvation is simple. It is simply believing, trusting in Jesus Christ and him alone for your salvation. It has nothing to do with your works, your obedience, your uh, any ritual you're involved in, your church involvement, church attendance, church membership. It has everything to do with who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Right now you can secure your eternal destiny by simply accepting that free gift by trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied this morning. We pray that you would challenge us with them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.